within three weeks, I found it for him. And it was a sale just around $5 million, which paid the rent for quite a while. Are you ready for the best real estate investing advice ever? Join Joe Fairless and today's best ever guests as they share it with you. It's the best ever advice with none of the fluff. Let's go. Heard of crowdfunding and still curious about how you can benefit from it? Well, we've got a step-by-step guide put together just for you by the best ever team and patch of land, the industry's leading crowdfunding experts. The best crowdfunding crash course ever, episodes 152, 159, 166, and 173 will provide you all you need to know to get started and begin benefiting immediately. Whether it's getting access to funds for your project or passively investing in other people's deals. The time is now to get started with Patch of Land. Go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever to grab your copy of the top 10 answers to the top 10 crowdfunding questions. That's P-A-T-C-H-O-F-L-E-N-D.com forward slash best ever. Hi, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless and I'm here with today's guest, Chris Morley. Hi, Chris. Hi, how you doing? Doing well. Thanks for joining us. Chris is joining us from New York City, New York, specifically the West Village, which is pretty darn close to where I'm at right now. Chris is the owner of BN Realty, and his focus is on residential rentals and sales in the New York City market. And he used to do uh, around 70 transactions a year, and now he's doing around 20, but he's increased his profit from those, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. And he is a Bearcat. He went to State University of New York at Binghamton. I have many Binghamton Bearcat friends. One of my good friends, Eric Schollenberg, is a Bearcat. So I'm looking forward to getting to know you, Chris. And with that being said, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure. I grew up in the Bronx in upstate New York. I grew up really around small businesses. My family had some uh, a restaurant, a car service, an ice cream truck, a few things like that. So um, just being around that, I really didn't fit into the uh, corporate office. I worked in finance for two or three years after college, and it just wasn't for me. But real estate, it just worked perfectly for. Like uh, right from the first day, I just matched up with it pretty well. So what did you learn from your experiences kind of being exposed to all those different companies and those industries, I mean, from restaurants to ice cream? Well, I really learned about not wasting people's time, especially upstate New York. It's like a seasonal business up there. So when the tourists come up, whenever anybody comes up, you have to make your money fast then. You have to have everything prepared and ready. And I know when I started out in real estate, a lot of other people you know, thought they could just make multiple appointments, waste people's time, all that kind of thing. And um, what, uh, what I did that, that really ended up working out well, better than I even thought it could – was um you know I get the phones to ring and I would ask people I'd make up a questionnaire and um, I'd ask people anything that they might want about the apartment because um well they trained you at the company where I was their line was uh, work with people till they find a place drop dead or move to Jersey ha 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 you know and um, and then I was taking people out and I mean they were like I want the biggest apartment for the money and then I was bringing them in six floor walk ups and they were like I can't walk up six flights you know. And I was like, you didn't tell me that. And they were like, you didn't ask, you know. So um, I came up with a questionnaire of everything they might have a problem with, might want to know, might want anything like that. And if they weren't willing to answer the questions and talk to me, I didn't take them out. But then in doing that, I started renting people on the first showing a lot. 
And then, you know, that got me a good reputation. And the thing where that really worked that I didn't anticipate this was the people who were patient enough to talk to me for, you know, 20 minutes on the phone before we went out. They were much better rental tenants after the fact. If there was a problem with their apartment, the building, whatever, they were patient. They'd work with the staff, everything like that. And I didn't realize it, but the staff started liking the people I brought to the buildings way more than everybody else. So they were finding apartments for anybody I brought there, and they were bending over backwards to put my deals through, like all over the West Village. So that worked quite well. Do you still use that process of pre-qualifying your clients? I do. I do. And how do you do that now? Well, one of the main questions is how many flights of stairs you're willing to walk up. Um, But then the other thing, uh, and also we ask them if there's any problems with their credit or anything that's going to come up. And if it's for a sale, we make sure they're pre-qualified and everything else to make sure the whole process will go through. Because they all have high hopes or they all think, oh, there was a misunderstanding with my credit or this, that, and the other. But you know, we need to know what that is up front so we can deal with it. Otherwise, we're just getting their hopes up and wasting everybody's time. Then the other thing I do after that is um, I talk to them about uh, three priorities, neighborhood, square footage, amenities within the building and or apartments. Obviously, some neighborhoods are more desirable than others, and some neighborhoods cost a lot more than others, like Tribeca, West Village, Upper East Side, Fifth Avenue. Some are cheaper, Midtown West, Midtown East, far Upper East Side, you know. And they're all desirable for different ways. And um, so we have a discussion about that. And that works well for two reasons. One, it gets them talking. And two, I can impress them with you know everything I know about the neighborhood. So they feel much more confident and they're less likely to talk to anybody else. Then we talk about the actual square footage, how much space they really need to live. Because wherever they're coming from, they're, you know, they know they're not going to get as much in Manhattan. So we have to be realistic about if they want a home office, if they want a second bedroom, how much closet storage, how big of a kitchen, you know, that kind of thing. And then amenities. And by amenities, I always tell them, I don't mean doorman elevator. Do you need Eastern or Southern exposure when you wake up? Do you need higher ceilings? Are you looking for character? Do you require a brand new looking kitchen? And the list goes on. Uh, the main question, you know, if they usually can't answer those things, what I usually ask them at that point is I say, if you had to move tomorrow and you had to pick a place, you know, like right now I only had two apartments, I say, if we go in the first apartment and it's just massively big, it's bigger than you can ever, you know, more space than you need, but the kitchen's from 1980 and the bathroom's from 1980, it's just old and the hallways are messy. And I say, then if we go into a building right next door, so it's the same block, same neighborhood, everything, and the apartment's small, it's tight, you know it's going to be tight, but there's a brand new kitchen and a brand new bathroom and the hallways are spotless, which one are you likely to go with? And usually they give me a very decisive answer after that. And most people want the brand new kitchen, they'll sacrifice on the square footage. How do you navigate the conversation with people who are just now moving to New York and as you said, the square footage is going to likely be significantly decreased and you've shown them a couple apartments and they're still just not sold on that whole lowering the square footage thing. Well, at this point, I actually have videos of a lot of properties that I send them before they come here. So they're prepped for that. And I also um, carry around, this is uh, sounds funny, I carry around cutout furniture. I have a sheet that's the exact size of a queen size mattress. So I actually have to prove to them they can fit beds in the bedrooms. They don't always believe me. 
And once I start doing that, they realistically see what the furniture is. And um, usually, since I mostly do downtown, they're not as concerned about the actual square footage. They're more about having a life in the neighborhood. And if they talk too much about this, I tell them, if you're home that much, you're not doing it right. You know, nobody's moving here to be inside an apartment all the time. And uh, then they usually kind of shake their head and agree. Let's talk about your transaction volume. How has that changed and evolved over the years? And why is that the case? Well, I started post 9-11. So the city was incredibly empty. And like I said, they, um, the, the joke, you know, the managers used to tell us because it wasn't their time that was being wasted as we ran all over the city was, you know, find a place to lay or work with them till they find a place, drop dead or move to Jersey. I decided to just kind of do the opposite. I just picked out, uh, well, the city was incredibly empty then, and you could show 10 to 20 apartments at a moment's notice. I mean, we all had keys to everything. They were just empty and, you know, and I would, uh, make copies of the keys. So anybody who call, I'd say, I can meet you right now. And I would just walk them around until we found a place. So one bedrooms at that point, like back in 02, there were some for 1800 to maybe 2100. So there was one August that I, I rented 17 of them, you know, I mean, it was just, a, the city was filling back up cause it was empty and there was a lot more. Yeah. And just people were able to afford those price points. Now those same one bedrooms are $4,500 a month. And, uh, you know, I don't know the stats on it, but there's a lot less people who can afford a $4,500 one bedroom than a $1,700 one bedroom, you know? And with that, I mean, what do you kind of attribute the the New York City economy and its strength towards and what's what's kind of changed your your business model and how you approach things? What's changed it? Well, I mean, I guess technology, obviously. Um, back in the day, we were using New York Times and Craigslist. Addresses weren't given out. So, um, so there was a lot more brokers and people were a lot more dependent on brokers. Now there's that website, Street Easy, so they have the addresses. So you just kind of have the exclusives they call you. And part of my business model being changed is, uh, you know, back then I, I never brought customers to the office. I mean, I had an office. Nowadays, I've kind of changed the business model where I invested in an office in the West Village. And um, yeah, because I was working from home and there's only so much you can do from your living room. And in doing that, it's just gotten me a few more transactions a year. Well, actually not. I mean, it's gotten me multi-million dollar sales that never would have happened. So now it's just if you can do one or more, two, one or two more, one or two more transactions a year makes a world of difference. Chris, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? My best advice, it would be to make sure you position your properties to come on the market at the right time. Everybody I deal with, we set things up so it comes on the market somewhere between May 31st and August 1st. Um, here in New York City, obviously during the crash at 08, everybody left all at the same time. And for the most part, they went back to college, grad school, whatever it was. And they all came back right in the summer of 2010. And again, that was one of those times, apartment... Um, yeah, prices just went up. I don't know the percentages, but uh, I remember some studios in Chelsea being 1900 in the middle of May, and come August, they were 2500 Just went through the roof. And so that went well, but then come November, October, similar apartments, we couldn't give them away. So Manhattan these days, 
it's busy at times and it's not busy other times. So you need to make sure your lease ends at a certain time so you can re-rent it easy. Also, you should set up the layouts of your apartments so they can suit different people. One of our floor through brownstone floor throughs in Chelsea, a year and a half ago, we got it back at the end of the summer. It was some share kids who really beat up the apartment. And um, so by the time we got it fixed up, it was November. There were no more share kids looking, and it, usually it was rented as a three-bedroom. But since it was a flexible layout, we were able to rent it to a couple who turned one of the bedrooms into a dining room, another one into a home office. And um, we gave them like an 18-month lease. And um, we, you know, we priced it a little lower, but they just moved out. I think they were paying 5400 and we just re-rented it for 6000 So it's all about the time of year you put it on and setting yourself up to get through the hard spots. There's going to be bumps in the market. There's going to be all kinds of things. And to me, there's a lot of people, they just think about getting the highest rent. They don't think about getting through the, the speed bumps that are going to come along. And you got to be ready for those. I mean, there's always going to be problems and it's you got to be ready. Do you think the seasonal nature of when you position your properties to come on a market is specific to New York City or do you think that's applicable to other markets? I think it's applicable to other markets because a number of the guys a num- we're getting a number of calls from 24 to 26 year old financial professionals from Philadelphia i don't know that new york city is the place you start your career anymore the big banks seem to be in other cities right now and the kids go there after college and do their 1 2 3 4 years and then they get recruited to private equity here in manhattan so it's definitely going on in Philadelphia and Virginia because that's where I'm getting uh, millennials in their mid-20s from. So, yes, it should apply to that. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure. Cool. First, a quick word from our best ever sponsors. Crowdfunding. You've heard about it, and now it's time to learn about it. Our best ever sponsor, Patch of Land, is a leading expert in the crowdfunding space, and they've got all the answers to your crowdfunding questions. Go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and grab your copy of the top 10 answers to the top 10 crowdfunding questions. That's P-A-T-C-H-O-F-L-E-N-D.com forward slash best ever. Are you looking for a step-by-step guide to starting your flipping career and successfully tackling your first flip project? If so, head to amazon.com and pick up the best-selling book, The Book on Flipping Houses by professional house flipper Jay Scott. That's The Book on Flipping Houses by Jay Scott. He's a fellow best ever guest and he's an active Best Ever listener. Check out his book, The Book on Flipping Houses. Best Ever book you've read? Onward, How Starbucks Fought for Its Life Without Losing Its Soul by Howard Schultz. And why is that the best ever book? Because it really shows how he was a professional at a high level and how he had his vision for Starbucks and he himself started it from a kiosk in a mall in Seattle. And he tells you all the, everything he went through with the company very honest about some of the problems he had like at high levels i believe he said in 2008 he um told everybody any very everybody who voted would get a free cup of coffee and that ended up being a legal disaster because you can't give people anything to vote and he made it you know he was very humble about and honest about the problems he had and how things didn't go right and how he was just angry at the whole company at times that uh they were putting in breakfast sandwiches and the whole Starbucks restaurant would smell like burnt cheddar. And he was like, you know, what are we doing? And so he was honest throughout the whole book about, you know, how they were always trying new ideas. They weren't working and he'd get it back on track. 
best ever personal growth experience and what you learned from it? At one of the uh, first rental companies I worked for, they put me in a small new office with a guy who was only uh, the manager was only in the business eight months and we didn't get along. Just uh, it was like one of those situations where I, I kept my customers away from him because he was so cranky. They were very happy with me till they met him and then they just hated everything. <laughs> and um, so I was a good agent. I got recruited to a better team. And uh, my first month with the better team, I made more money than I had made the previous eight months with him. And eventually they moved him back to being an agent and they put him on the team three deaths away from me, which was kind of awkward because I you know, quit working for him. But he ended up being a really good guy. And it just taught me that just because someone's uh, you know, mean in the position they're in at the time doesn't mean they're a bad person. It just means they're having difficulty being in that position. So in the future, you know, you got to let those things go and not take it so personal. When I quit working for him, I was really mad that my eight months had been wasted and this, that, and the other. But, you know, I realized we all got to go through these things and uh, not to hold a grudge. What's the best ever success habit you practice? Encouraging my customers to be as honest as possible with me. I always tell them, don't hesitate to tell me anything, especially, you know, when we first speak. Because people with real estate, they have just weird things they want, weird things they need. And sometimes they're scared to tell you whatever it may be, whether fears of safety, that they're a smoker, all those things. But you need to know those things to really you know, serve your customers well. So that's definitely it. not judging them, just telling them they can tell me whatever they want and they'll stay between us and it'll help me do the job better. Best ever deal you've done? That was most recently The Office, just because... I got that office. I wasn't sure how it was going to go. And um, sure enough, somebody just walking by uh, popped their head in and said, oh, if you have any good lofts with outdoor space for $2 million to $5 million, let me know. And I said, oh, I'll do that. And they had been looking for a year and a half on their own. And in uh, three weeks, I found it for them. Uh, and it was a sale, you know, just around $5 million, which paid the rent for quite a while. So that one was quite rewarding because it was uh, my idea panned out well. Best ever project you're most excited about right now? The sales market in general and finding new marketing strategies, non-traditional ones, to get listings and buyers and everything else. You know, everybody, all the major companies are doing the search engine optimization, the Google ads. I really love just coming up with out-of-the-box ideas um, that work better, you know, because that's... I get, I'm proud of that, and it's fun to do it that way, and it's great when they work, you know? Well, I mean, clearly there's some follow-up questions to that one. Okay. You've piqued my curiosity. What are some of your favorite non-traditional strategies for getting listings and buyers? Well, right now, the storefront, because it's – I don't have a traditional storefront. It's, it looks more like a coffee shop, So, and it's just 155 square feet. But, you know, decorating it at different times, really embracing the holidays, Thanksgiving – um, Halloween, things like that, being much more traditional instead of just a store and being part of a neighborhood, uh, people really remember that months later. Um, so that's going well. And I guess I wouldn't call it non-traditional, but my newsletters that I send out, since I have a background in sociology, you know, I have certain insights and I you know, send out that newsletter in a very casual way to get the ideas across. And um, it's that one is works well because uh, my customers say, oh, yeah, I brought that up at a dinner party and uh, uh, three people now want to talk to you, you know. So planting specifically planting seeds 
for customers to use in their personal life to quote me. And then they call me from the table at brunch and then I meet them there and show them places. What's an example of that where you've sent out a newsletter and people have been talking, you know, asking, telling other friends about you? When I first started doing the newsletter, a customer I hadn't heard of from in six years, I made some quote to an article in the Wall Street Journal about the market changing. I don't even remember what it was. But whatever it was, since I tied myself to it and that, they all started talking. And a couple that was just that was here visiting and decided maybe they wanted to live here, I met them at the restaurant and then I rented them an apartment that day. Best ever way you like to give back? Talking to new agents or people who come to my store looking for work, looking to become agents. I really enjoy that because I feel a lot of people in the business, either the veteran ones don't want to talk to anybody and they're kind of stuck up. And then there's managers who are just trying to recruit people and not tell them honest information. And, you know, when I get somebody who's been talking to them and all that and I give them the honest information and they're able to make a real decision about their life and how they're going to do their career and everything, that really means a lot to me. And usually they appreciate it too. Best ever quote. I'm going to go with one of my own on that, actually. It's best to make decisions for yourself in life because if you don't, they'll be made for you and you won't like the results. How have you applied that in your life? I make decisions as quickly as possible and stay on top of all situations. I know that if I don't make them fast enough, I'll lose the opportunity. I may lose the opportunity or whatever the situation is. So it's always better to jump in there and choose the way things are going to go than to hold back and work on something else, you know. What would you say is the biggest mistake you've made in real estate? Not figuring out to do a newsletter sooner. I mean, definitely the first three, four years, they everybody said to do a newsletter, but nobody would tell you what to write in it. And the technology just wasn't there back then. There wasn't, you know, the different websites like Constant Contact or straightforwardlistings.com where you could like send out newsletters and then you know I was sending out postcards three or four times a year which some people appreciated but you know it just didn't work that well I definitely regret not starting some type of newsletter sooner but I mean I had to go through different agencies working for different people to figure out how to do that right but that one if I had done that sooner I would I would have such a better business right now and speaking of that newsletter, what's the best ever place for the listeners to reach you? Oh, my cell phone. <laughs> I'm not anywhere more than two hours pretty much ever. I mean, I'm going to showings. I'm going to listings. I pop in and out of the office all day. I'm talking to my agents. I'm sometimes going to showings with them to help consult. You know, So cell phone is where you're going to get me. You want to give your number out? Sure. I'm at 917-655-1920. Again, 917-655-1920. Chris, thanks so much for being a guest on The Best Ever Show and sharing your best ever advice with the best ever listeners and talking about, one, how you pre-qualify, how you learned to do that with a questionnaire initially, and what the result of that was where the, the landlords ended up wanting to rent to you and find more properties for you because your renters ended up being more qualified and being better residents in the property. And then... The three priorities that you go over with your clients, one neighborhood, two square footage, three amenities with the apartment, and whenever you were mentioning, it's not necessarily doorman amenities, it's 
eastern or southern exposure when you wake up amenities, things that might not necessarily be obvious to people who haven't been in the business for a long time. And I, I got a kick out of you carrying around a cutout of the furniture. I think that's pretty darn creative. And you know, I, I think anybody who's showing an apartment, even if it's not New York City or a house in other areas, having that if you're kind of tight with space so that you can show what fits where. I can't even totally take credit for that one to tell you the truth because I got that. There were two girls who rented an apartment. I think this is a bit out there, but they requested to come to the apartment before their furniture was delivered, before the lease started, so I had to go with them. They had all the dimensions of the furniture that was going to be delivered, and they brought in New York Times, and they cut out the exact shape of all the furniture so they could figure out the best way to lay out the apartment. That's psychotic. <laughs> That's what happened. And coincidentally, the same week, uh, the Queer Eye for the Straight Guy show, they said uh, that you want to keep your bed as low to the ground because the higher up it is, it feels like it takes up more of the room. So that's why I did that. Oh, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, because whenever you lay it down, just a piece of paper on the ground, it seems like it's taking up a lot less space as if it was raised really higher. Yeah. So, yeah, very interesting stuff. And then lastly, I'll end with this. The newsletter that you send out, and it's taken you over your career to kind of refine that newsletter approach and, and just create one. The thing that you mentioned that really stands out to me is when you send out those newsletters, give people something to talk about with their friends. That's awesome advice. I mean, so succinct and giving them, arming them some, with something that they can have a dinner conversation with a friend about that's interesting and they'll obviously be like, well, where'd you learn that? Where'd you, well, there, I, I actually heard about it from, from Chris. You know, here, here's his newsletter. I mean, I, I think that's just, just a great approach. I mean, it all ties back to adding a lot of value to the lives of others. And that's a really good way of thinking about it. Give people something to talk about with their friends. So with that being said, thank you so much for being on the show, Chris. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Joe. Hey, you, best ever listener. Do you want more? Then go to joefairless.com, where you'll get tons of free videos, templates, and content to help you get deals done. And remember to subscribe to the best ever show in iTunes, so you can keep getting your daily dose of the best real estate investing advice ever.